Thank you very much for joining us on this episode of the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. I'm Sol Ebema. And today I have a special guest who is a chaplain, uh, Chaplain Kevin Jordan. Welcome to the show. Hey, it's my privilege to be here. Thank you, Saul. Uh, could you maybe <laughs> introduce yourself? Oh, you bet. My name is, uh, again, I'm Kevin Jordan. I live in the Austin, Texas area, although I'm, I'm originally from Chicago. Been here about six years. I came here particularly to uh, be a part of a chaplain's training program through a hospital, a residency. And uh, that opened the doorway for me to get in hospice. But again, um, I, I live in Austin. I'm from the Chicago area. I'm married. Uh, my wife, Karen, and I are also musicians, and we have a little band that we play around the Austin area at. But I'm also, I work for a, a local hospice called uh, Blue Water Hospice. It's a new hospice. Um, and I've helped to develop kind of their psychosocial program, and, and uh, we're just getting off the ground. And, uh, but I've been working with hospice for about uh, six years uh, now. So, uh, so were you born and raised in Chicago? Actually, I was born in the Quad Cities in Moline, um, but I spent most of my adult life, raised my kids in the Chicago area for the most part, where I was a pastor for years uh, in the Chicago area and also into, we, were, we planted a church in Madison, Wisconsin too, um, and then came back to Chicago after that. Um, yeah. So um, <laughs> you spoke about being a pastor, you spoke about being a musician. Uh, your chaplain and bereavement counselor. In yeah. just within minutes, you have this amazing spectrum. What was your dream as a child? Well, my 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 original dream was I wanted to be a jazz piano player. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool I, stuff. I, yeah, I played I played piano all my life, uh, ever since I was a young child, and uh, really loved jazz and. Um, I wanted to go to Berkeley Conservatory of Music and study jazz piano. That's what I thought I wanted to do in high school. Mm -hmm. And I ended up uh, on a different route. Um, <laughs> what changed? Well, I, part of it was I became a Christian uh, in the high school years. And this was back in the 70s. And, uh, and I, I met some folks from a, from a Christian liberal arts college Asbury College out of in Kentucky, out of the Methodist tradition. Um, and I ended up there. Uh, and um, <laughs> it's a long story, but I, but there I kind of found a, a, a new passion for uh, Christian ministry, um, became a pastor in the Chicago area. Um, that's a long story of how I got there. Uh, worked in Chicago for a number of years, and then uh, I don't, I'm, there's so much. So, so I'm, I'm just curious about your calling then, because it looks like you you were on a different path, and then you, you know you began to dig deeper into your faith. Yeah. So could you describe your calling then to ministry? I sure can. I I left Asbury College as an agnostic. That's a long story how I got there. Mm. I went on to work on a degree, on a graduate degree in philosophy. And this all pertains to that because it was during that period, my wife was attending a church and I wasn't at that point uh, while I was working on this graduate program in philosophy. And the pastor of that church reached out to me and he himself was a philosophy student in the past. And we would meet for coffee and wrestle with 
issues of faith and belief in God and other philosophical issues. And over time, uh, you know, I began to realize um, there was a there was a huge hole in my life that uh, nothing else was quite feeling that I had discovered earlier that I found a fulfillment that was gone when I during my years as an agnostic there, and over time I I, I came back to faith and uh, became part of a. Uh, a, a ministry to kind of an urban ministry where we were reaching out to uh, urban poor um, and uh, and that our church was sponsoring and I became part of that and in that context felt a call to to, to learn more about mm. urban ministry so I headed to uh, where I found a, a solid urban ministry program at that time it was called Northern Baptist Seminary in the Chicago area that's where now I went to school now it's called oh is that right <laughs> <laughs> I ended up there to study with Ray Bakke yes. and uh, to learn about urban ministry. And then I got a job as a pastor in the city at a church that uh, on the on the north side, northwest side around Irving Park and Pulaski. Um, I, we moved in there and uh, and over time, it just became clear that. I felt a sense of calling to continue in not just urban ministry, but pastoral ministry in general for a while. So, you know, so not many that, other paths down that road that I could take you, but uh, that's that's it in a nutshell. Uh, um, yeah, in 2005, I was in South Africa, and Northern Seminary gave me a presidential scholarship to come and do my master's there. Right. Um, so you are into urban ministry. Was that a church plant or just a, a parachurch ministry helping the urban poor? It was an it was a parachurch ministry at the, that kind of introduced me to that. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, when I moved to Chicago, I got involved in a, a church in the city, um, and uh, and then we eventually planted a church in Madison, Wisconsin, in downtown Madison that was reaching university students as well as uh, a lot of the urban poor and the and the city street folks. How did that go? That went well. We were there for five years. Uh, um, our church grew to about 100, mostly students and urban poor, so it was hard to maintain ourselves uh, financially. Um, so uh, so you closed down? No, no, the church uh, continued after I left. So. so how did you begin your journey to chaplaincy? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, gosh, there's so many... I when I when I left er, uh, the church plant, I was burned out, mm. uh, and then kind of a tailspin. Um, there's many reasons for that that I've learned, uh, but I just thought I was just completely burned out because I'd given myself so much to this ministry. But really, what it was, I had some unhealthy views of myself that I was carrying in the ministry. I didn't know that at the time. What were those unhealthy For example, views? There's a sense of that I had, to, I was always living in the future. I always thought that we had to accomplish something. And so I failed to appreciate the journey that God had us on. My wife would always say, Kevin, look at what God's doing now. And always saying, yeah, but we need to, and so on and so forth. That's not a healthy way to live. So I was always anxious about the future. I didn't know this. Uh, but I, I discovered that aspect. And a lot of that was tied to my own sense of uh, 
uh, what I discovered was shame. You know, I, I've understood shame this way. Guilt is when we feel bad about something. Shame is when we feel bad about ourselves. And I never could quite live up to anything I was doing to this particular notion that I had of what it meant to be successful at that, whether it was being a parent, a husband, a musician, or a pastor. And I was constantly living with that kind of uh, issue. And I, and I didn't fully realize that until later. But anyway, I left uh, that church burned out. I was welcomed back to a church that I was at in the Chicago area just to come and heal, even though they, they invited me back to be on staff. But they basically said, Kevin, just come and do what you need to do to heal. Thought I was healing. I was uh, and uh, got offered a job in the New York City area uh, as an associate pastor at a, at a church on Long Island, just, uh, just outside of New York City. Went there, but again, found myself uh, kind of burned out because I was dealing with the same issues. At that time, I didn't know what I was going to do because I, I eventually realized I couldn't go on in pastoral ministry because I, I just didn't have the energy to do that or the heart anymore. Um, so a friend at that point said to me, you ought to consider hospice chap or a hospital chaplaincy as maybe just a doorway to get back towards. I wasn't ready for that. I wasn't I needed some healing in my life, but that kind of stuck with me. I ended up instead going on to graduate school, working on a PhD in theology at Garrett in Chicago. Um, but again, ran into some of the same issues when I was in graduate school. And uh, um, it wasn't until though, while I was there, that a friend, another person came up to me and said, Kevin, I think you'd make a good hospital chaplain or a good chaplain. And I said, well, I just don't think I, I'm cut out for that. Anyway, I didn't know what else to do with myself. So, so there's so many angles here. I decided to uh, try it out. Um, so I, I got involved in a, I got accepted in a, uh, an externship at, uh, at a, a level one um, a trauma center hospital just outside of Chicago and, um, and where I could do that part-time. One day a week, I'd come in for classwork and a couple days a week, I'd, I'd work in the hospital. And I did that and I liked it. And I found that I found myself actually starting to learn some things about myself that were good, helpful. So, uh, so before, have, before we go yeah. further, though, the issue of shame, yeah. I mean, that is yeah. concrete. It looks like it followed you for so many years. Where did that shame originate from? I, I still don't know. But here's what I think. I was adopted when I was two. Um, I, was, uh, I was living with my grandparents. I've just recently discovered this family. I didn't know anything about them. Found out I was living with my grandparents till I was two um, in my biological mom's family. Uh, they couldn't keep me any longer. At age two, I was put up for adoption and given, and I was adopted by another family. Um, so I was kind of, I was sort of ripped from one family into another family. And both families I, I've learned loved me. And my, my adopted family really loved me, gave me a solid foundation of love, acceptance. Um, uh, but I think that left this scar in my life. Mm -hmm. I don't know that, Saul, but I kind of have a hunch. A lot of that sense of, of uh, shame 
centered on that. Who knows what else went into that? But that was something I think I've been plagued with all my life until about six years ago, seven years ago. So what changed seven years ago? You feel like you healed from that? Oh, you bet. Yeah. I don't have, I don't wrestle with those things anymore at all. What changed was the year I spent in residency at a hospice, at a hospital chaplaincy residency at, at, here in the Austin area. That was life changing for me. Um, it was radical for me because I had got, I had, I had a lot of education, but all of the education I had was about some external subject matter outside of myself, abstract, mm. like philosophy, even theology. But all of a sudden in a, in this residency, the whole focus of the education or a great part of it was me. You were looking internally to look at you because the assumption was you don't have much to offer folks if you aren't yourself uh, kind of together. Mm. You got a lot of issues, and I did, and I began to see those. And one of the issues that I came face to face with was shame, and I realized I had I had always been sort of a perfectionist. And I and I thought my my inability to evaluate myself as uh, as being successful was because I was a perfectionist, and it was. Mm -hmm. But I've since learned that perfectionism usually is tied, or often is tied, to a sense of shame. Mm -hmm. There's a deeper issue below that. And uh, during that year of, of uh, hospice residency, both looking at myself and working with patients, I, I, I came to a place of profound and utter healing. I've not had the issues I had prior to that point, uh, dealing with depression, uh, dealing with uh, um, a lack of sense of self-worth. And uh, but all that's I mean, it's virtually gone. My wife talks about how I'm a different person. And uh, and now I'm a hospice chaplain and doing what I probably and I and I'm probably more at peace in ministry than I've ever been in my whole life. You know, uh, you, Kevin, you spoke about something really powerful there. Uh, what you encounter during your residency is an authentic community that journeyed alongside you and dug That's deeper right. into your life and helped you to reflect and actually confront your authentic self and become who you were meant to be. Um, sometimes we take for granted, you know, the beauty of an authentic community in our lives and what you speak, you know, uh, really speaks powerfully. Yeah, with that, we'll take a little break. And I'm Sole Berman. You're listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. We continue our conversation with Kevin Jordan. Uh, part of your work with your hospice, you also work, you said you work as a, as a bereavement counselor. And um, you, you told me earlier before recording that you have strong passion for deal, you know, help people dealing with mourning and grief. Could you define those things and then continue? Oh, I'd be glad to, Saul. How I understand, um, I, from my perspective, there's a, there's a significant difference between grief and mourning that um, has kind of, that, that, that kind of uh, underlies my whole approach to working with folks that are grieving. Um, grief is, from my perspective, the internal response to human loss, loss of all sorts, it can be a loss of a job, a loss of a marriage, 
uh, loss of a place to live, all those kinds of things are the natural human response. Not every human uh, uh, deals with grief in the same way, but most humans, healthy humans, have uh, a, a response to loss. And the, most the more significant the loss, the deeper that response is. And that is usually the deepest when we lose another human that we love. Um, so grief is the internal workings out of that, the feelings, the thoughts, the feelings of sadness, the feelings of confusion and lostness and, and the thoughts that kind of accompany that. Mourning, on the other hand, is, I could put it this way, grief gone public. It's the outward hmm. expression of, those, of, of that stuff of grief, the internal feelings and thoughts. Yeah. And here's what I've learned. Only the one who mourns mends. Hmm. Unless there's some authentic way for a person to express outwardly their feelings, their thoughts about the grief, about their grief, they, they, they'll be stuck and they won't have movement in the grief journey. And grief's a journey. It's not an event. It's something that one works on throughout their whole life. Hmm. Uh, and, uh, and the goal isn't to get over grief, but to integrate it into our life so that we become able to live the rest of our life in a way that both honors and remembers our loved one, but enables us to live fully as a person. And uh, if we're a Christian, as a believer in Christ uh, uh, for the rest of their, our lives. But again, at the very heart of this mm. is, is helping people to find an authentic way for them to mourn to express their grief. And that can be in, in a lot of different ways. It depends upon the person and their background and their culture. You know, it's really powerful. Uh, we, we, we talk a lot about grief, but uh, not much about mourning. Um, yeah. uh, in South Africa, when somebody dies, uh, there are so many rituals, like, you know, the family yeah. covers the mirrors or wears black and have this outward expression. Uh, what is the role of ritual in mourning? I, I significant. Um, in fact, I think most cultures, it's fascinating that you said that, Saul, because I think we live in a mourning avoidant culture here in the United States. Mm. Um, we tend to downplay mourning and looking at it as something that's morbid. We give maybe people uh, a week or two to do bereavement. You know, they get off of work. Yeah. Uh, nobody wears black anymore. Even in this culture, at one time, people would wear, you know, a, would dress a certain way, even, even, in, even in America, not, not contemporary culture, but they would dress in a certain way. And uh, they would wear black or, or dark colors to, significant, to, to signify that they were in mourning. And people yeah. knew that. And, uh, and that was healthy because it would gave them an outward expression, an opportunity to, to express their grief. And ritual is a vital part of that. Uh, funerals mm. are part of that kind of uh, mourning. In fact, I, from my perspective, this whole movement towards life's to, to, towards celebrations of a celebration of life as opposed to a funeral is problematic. Because at a celebration, we're not to mourn, we're to celebrate, hmm. we're to be joyful, we're to express our appreciation and gratitude and, and joy over the life of a person, all which is, is, is important. But what it tends to do is downplays the sadness, hmm. the, the expressions of even anger and fear and loss. People are, are encouraged not to cry, but to be happy. Hmm. And, and funerals were largely rituals, ritual kinds of expressions to enable people to mourn. 
Yeah. Express the feelings of their grief. Those feelings can include gratitude and joy and often do. It's a mixed bag of stuff inside of us that needs to come out. And uh, anyway, ritual is a key part of that. And, 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 and ritual, of course, depends upon one's culture and one's family. And, and, and one of the things I've helped people do is, is, to, is to find ways to ritually express their grief, hmm. whether that's, uh, you know, uh, um, helping them have a service of mourning if they haven't had that in the past. Do you, do you encounter any kind of resistance? Because you really speak of something really important. I see, you know, the, uh, people are anxious to jump into celebration of life. Mm-hmm. So do you think that the, the culture views mourning as, as shameful? They do. I do think that. They look at it as something morbid. Um, we have a hard time with death in this culture. Um, of course, death isn't anything any of us want to deal with, but we have to deal with. Um, we tend to push death aside. We push it into the hospital, into the nursing home. It's no longer part of, used to be that people died at home. It's starting to happen more in hospice. That's one of the things I love about hospice. Mm. Uh, but death is something you push away. It's not something you 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 deal with and accept and and part of that is the pushing away of mourning, hmm. uh, you know. And uh, so, you know, people even people even in 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 the church don't know how to deal with or help help. You know, the, it's awkward. I, I had a friend, particularly recently, uh, a good friend who I worked with in hospice, hmm. uh, who's no longer working in hospice, but she lost her six year old daughter to to brain cancer. Hmm. And her church rallied around them and supported them significantly. Yet, on the other hand, they they honestly, when you talk to them, they'll also say all the hurtful things that were said to them by their church family. They don't hold that against their church family. Because on the other hand, their church family, again, supported them significantly financially. Uh, Food, you know, just being there. But, uh, uh, but uh, you know, when it came to people talking to them about their, their loss, that people would say hurtful things, you know, like, you know, you're, it, it's, it's okay now your daughter's in heaven, you know. Mm. Um, you've got other children. I hope you can focus on them. Mm. Um, you know, God has a plan. Mm. And, and, and they knew that. But th- those are ways in which people kind of push aside the pain in the life of the, that person and don't allow them to express that. So, and again, I think that's all indicative of mourning uh, avoidant culture that's even infiltrated the church. What have you found uh, helpful tips, especially in guiding a family through mourning? Um, because I think mourning is, uh, that is something that I think uh, we have to help families recognize yeah. that it's okay. It's okay to feel sad. It's That's okay. Right. You know, I like the book. It's okay that you're not okay. Uh, yeah. Because we are quick to jump in. Yeah, words like, oh, he's in heaven, or they had a good life, long life. All those things may be true. Yeah. Uh, but this is a significant loss that has That's to be right. honored before we move forward. That's that's exactly right. And uh, in fact, you may have to move backwards to be able to move forward. Yeah. By moving backwards, I mean kind of revisiting some of the stuff in your life 
but that's a whole different issue. Anyway, <laughs> but I, I agree with you. So um, from the time you began working as a Bureauman counselor, what are, what are the things, what are new knowledge? What is the new knowledge you've learned from the job? Yeah, I see my major role as being a facilitator of mourning. So, hmm. uh, so, so I sit with a family. Um, I help. I my my goal is to to help explore to the, with them what how they feel. What what are their thoughts? What are they thinking? And then to help them realize those thoughts and feelings, as difficult as they are, there's nothing wrong with those thoughts and feelings as long as they don't lead to some. Uh, kind of uh, uh, means of abusing themselves or others. There's nothing wrong with them. They just are. In fact, they need to pay attention to them because they're probably telling them some something that's going to be key for them to have to deal with in order to move forward in the grief journey mm -hmm. and move towards mending and integration so that they integrate that grief into their life uh, in a way that enables them to live life fully. So I sit with folks, help them to see that. And I also tell them this, this is a key lesson I've learned. The only way through those feelings is through. So we often, um, we're often saying to one another, and, and I, I hear the folks I deal with say it often too. They'll say, oh yeah, the only way through is through. You know, I have to, the only way through this feeling of pain or this feeling of bitterness, this feeling of anger is through it. I have to talk about it. I have to express it in some kind of way that's appropriate. And as I deal with that, I can begin to pay attention to what there is that I can learn from that and what it means for me to move forward in my grief journey. Hmm. Man, those are powerful words. So you look at yourself as a facilitator of mourning. I mean, that is such a posture. Uh, what forms that posture? Is it your theological background or what forms that? Yeah, I, well, I tell you where I've learned it. Hmm. Uh, I, uh, when I became a, uh, when I start, when I was hired at a hospice uh, a while back to develop a bereavement program, I realized I had a lot to learn. And I got connected with an organization out of Colorado, uh, led by a, by a grief counselor by the name of Alan Wolfelt. And uh, his organization, he's become a, him and his organization has kind of become a mentor for me. I do training with them every year. And his book, uh, I'd recommend it highly to anybody who wants to do work with grief or understand grief, uh, um, Understanding Your Grief, 10 Touchstones. It's available on Amazon. Um, uh, that, that philosophy of understanding the difference between grief and mourning and understanding, uh, my role as a facilitator of, mor of mourning isn't necessarily the way they put it, but I've learned that from them and from him. So, mm. so how do you define your theology of care? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, um, he, it's fascinating to me, Saul, that, uh, one of the things I had to deal with in um, uh, the year I spent, the, the healing year, the magnificently healing year that I spent at, in my residency as a hospice chaplain, uh, in a hospital, hospital chaplain, um, was I dealt with my own grief. One of my first assignments was to, was to do a, a kind of an a, a autobiography of my grief. Mm. And, that, and that's kind of how I faced and this is this is essential to my understanding of, of kind of a theology of care. 
that opened the door for me to be able to care for others with grief as I, as I dealt with my own grief. Um, and here's kind of where, there's that passage, I think, in 2 Corinthians where we're encouraged by the Apostle Paul to, uh, um, uh, um, out of, out of, for some reason, the, the passage is escaping me, but mm. out, of, out of the abundance of our own, out of the comfort we have received from Christ, we're to comfort others. Mm. That's kind of, and out of the comfort, the healing, the, the, the stuff of my own life, that I've received grace and healing and mercy and from others, from God, uh, that enables me to be able to give to others. And uh, um, so I, 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 so that's why I don't, I, I, so even helping others with mourning, it comes out of that. I, I've been helped with my own, uh, uh, you know, grief and mourning and, and, enables me to help others. I don't know if that makes sense. But. Makes a lot of sense. With that, we'll take a little break and we'll be right back. I'm Sole Berman. You're listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. We continue our conversation with Kevin Jordan. Um, uh, I like your postures, you know, as a facilitator of mourning, as a chaplain. Um, and earlier, you shared a lot of brokenness in your life. So you're almost like a wounded healer. You've gone through a lot of challenges in your life. And um, for our listeners, you know, uh, as, as you practice your chaplaincy and as yeah. you practice your work as a grief counselor, uh, what advice, you know, would you give people who are dealing with grief and even those who want to be, to become like you, to transform their pain, their shame, their heart into healing vessels? Yeah, that's a great question, So. If, if you're one that's dealing with grief yourself, um, one of the important things is to realize that it's okay to reach out to others. Uh, you, you, most of us don't do well in the grief journey on our own. Mm -hmm. We need a community of other folks that can help us with that. The problem is a lot of the community we have around us isn't... Uh, aren't equipped themselves to deal with it. So we need to find folks that are safe and uh, where we can express our grief and uh, aren't going to be judgmental. We're going to help us do that. Um, one of the ways you can do that is to contact a local hospice. And most hospices have bereavement chaplains or bereavement counselors, and uh, they can connect you with someone. And I know at our hospice, we're not just going to help folks that are our, our families and loved ones of our patients. Uh, we, we see part of our mission as, as helping uh, anybody that's dealing with grief and pain of loss. And we'll offer our services to them as well. A lot of hospices will do that. So it's a place to start. Some churches have uh, grief support groups as well. Mm -hmm. uh, and those, that's a very helpful. But again, we need others in our life to be able to walk through this journey. Um, the other thing is just to realize that grief is a journey. It's not an event. And the goal of grief isn't to get over it. In fact, we don't get over grief because grief is kind of part of love. In fact, it's a vital part of love. We grieve deeply that which we love the most, and particularly a person mm. we love. And uh, you don't get over love. You don't want to get over love. 
But so the goal isn't to get over our grief, but to integrate it into our life so that it becomes part of us in a way in which enables us to live in a healthy, free, whole way for the rest of our life in a way too that maybe that does honor and remember our loved one, but also enables us to live fully uh, for the rest of our life in a way and contribute if we're a believer to God's work and, uh, uh, but to helping others as well. Mm. Um, so understanding that it's a journey yeah. and that you need others to help you in that journey, yeah. I think are two key things. And that's exactly what you did in your personal life. Um, I know that when people come into this kind of ministry, it's because they've encountered some losses. Uh, was that what brought you to this kind of ministry? Yeah, uh, it, it wasn't what directly brought me or consciously brought me, but I think it was what was behind the everything that kind of led me to this. You know, the the pain and and uh, uh, sense of uh, of uh, shame that I had in my own life had to do with largely with grief. I think I was adopted again. I told you when I was two, um, ripped out of one family. Uh, I, who I lived with until I was two, and then all of a sudden I became part of another family. And both families were loving, I found out, especially the family that adopted me. I, they, they were a loving family. They, they led me to Christ. They, they did so much for me. But you and felt I, a strong sense of loss. But I felt that sense yeah. of loss, and I think I carried that with me. Um, in fact, recently I've discovered my biological mom's family and reconnected with many of them, and 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 it's brought this sense of 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 wholeness and and contentment that I didn't even know I needed. So that happened. Also, when I was 19, my adopted mom, who raised me, died of cancer. She was ripped out of my life, and for the first time, I tasted death. My dad, and I don't blame him for this, remarried within six months, and my family didn't have a chance to grieve or mourn. Hmm. Uh, there's a long story around that, too. Uh, and But I kind of pushed all that aside. I thought, well, my dad has his life to live. I, I need to just support him. And uh, both my little sister and I both uh, didn't as a family, get an opportunity to grieve and to mourn together as a result of that. And we, that's something we talk about to this day. And, uh, and again, I don't blame my dad for that. Then when I was uh, in the year 2000, my dad uh, died. And there were some hard things around that that uh, I, I won't go into that at this point. But that, again, kind of squelched my... The, the difficult things that occurred around his death kind of squelched my opportunity to mourn and grieve, and I buried it. I buried that again. So I buried this stuff from my being ripped from one family when I was two to another family. The, the loss there was never counseled or given any opportunity to talk about that. I buried the, the loss and death of my mom at 19, the loss and death of my dad in the year 2000. And all of that, I think, kind of built up to a crescendo in my life and overflowed into, you know, depression and some other things that, that weren't healthy for me physically, uh, that stress and so on and so forth. And yet, and again, like I said, one of the first things that happened to me 
in my uh, hospice residency, it was an assignment where I was to talk about my own grief. And that opened the door for me to begin to move towards healing and uh, mending and integration. And, uh, and which I think it's fascinating. Now here I am working with folks in a hospice setting who are dealing with death and grieving and mm -hmm. mourning. And I, I don't think that's by accident. And even though I wasn't fully conscious of the process, mm. I think, you know, perhaps God, but nonetheless, you know, I was being led along this track to this point. And, and now I'm doing something that I, I hope I do until I die. I, mm. it's, it's brought me more joy and satisfaction and contentment and, than any other job I've ever had in my life. So, so in a sense, you found yourself. I have, Saul. So. So before we conclude, what, what have you found from your personal life and from your practice, some helpful practices to help people mourn and grieve? You bet. First of all, um, find practice. Everybody uh, mourns in different ways, but one thing that can often help people is to have a journal where you, you, you write down your, your, your feelings and thoughts based upon your, and again, it's so helpful when you have someone else helping you do this, but that can be a, a key practice that is very helpful to people where they, they, rather than squelch those thoughts and feelings or even judge them as being appropriate or inappropriate, just find a, have a place just to write them down, whether it's anger, bitterness, you know, all those kind of thoughts and feelings, particularly as Christians, sometimes we push aside as being illegitimate, sometimes even anger at God, but to express those in a journal can be a way to begin the mourning process. I think the next step would be to find somebody to talk through with that, or to find uh, rituals uh, to be able to express some of those kinds of things. Um, and uh, another thing for some folks is using art as a way to express their grief. Some people love to draw or uh, paint or write music. And again, not everybody can do this, but for some, that's a very key thing that I help people step into if that's part of their life. Um, but again, the key thing is to find some way to outwardly express your grief. Mm -hmm. uh, journaling can be a key way, though. So that's one thing that I often recommend to people. Yeah, I read a neat story of um, a girl, an artist in South Africa. Uh, her mother died and she struggled with the loss and she was looking for ways to feel that sense of connection with her mother again. So one day she was looking through her mother's stuff and she found old pictures. And wow. when she looked at her mother's closet, she saw some of those dresses there. So she yeah. wore those same dresses and took the similar pictures her mother took and then inserted her recent picture to her mother's picture when they're dressed the same. And <laughs> I don't even know how to explain, but it was such a powerful way to mourn. Oh, that is powerful and beautiful. What a powerful expression of mourning. Yeah. Uh, Can uh, I tell one other story? So yeah. in light of that? Yes. Uh, one person I was dealing with um, in helping uh, through their, their grief journey, um, they had lost their mother and, and their mother had lived with them for years and, and had become just, you know, someone 
who uh, they cared for at the end of their life and so on and so forth at the end of their mom's life. So very important to them. And so a profound sense of loss when all of a sudden she was gone. One day he found one of her dresses mm. and he just picked it up and he used to dance. Him and his mom went dancing mm. and some music was on and he, he held those, that dress and, and found himself dancing in the living room and weeping. Mm. And it was, and at first he was kind of filled with shame that he did that. And we helped him see that was a good thing to do. It was an appropriate expression of mourning. And he hung that death, death that, uh, that dress in the living room. And from time to time, he'd pick that dress up and dance yeah. with his mom. And, and, you know, there was a period where that was no longer needed in his life. Yes. But for a while, that was a profound way for him to express his grief. And it reminds me of this lady that you shared about as well. Yeah, it's really powerful. Before we jump into the celebration of life, we need to pause and, right. and mourn. And uh, this has been quite a, a powerful, powerful reminder and a lesson that there's a place and time for everything and there should be a time to mourn. Yeah. What are your final thoughts? Um. Make sure that you uh, express your grief. Nothing else I can say that's more important than that. Mm -hmm. uh, the only way through it is through it. Yeah. Um, Thank you very much, Kevin. Okay. Thanks, Saul. All right. Blessings to you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah. That was Chaplain Kevin Jordan, and thank you for listening.